Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Edward Kelsey Moore at St. Paul's Rondo Community Library. Edward Kelsey Moore is a pen behind 2014's breakout hit, The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. Moore's debut follows three lifelong friends, dubbed the Supremes while in high school, as they navigate four decades of life's changes. It garnered Moore a Best First Novel Award from the American Library Association Black Caucus, among other high honors. The Supremes also boasted an impressive run on the New York Times bestseller list and has been optioned by Fox Searchlight Pictures for a motion picture. His anticipated follow-up the Supreme Sing the Happy Heartache Blues hit shelves in June. Odette, Clarice, and Barbara Jean are back in the sequel adventure that Bookpage lauds as an uplifting read which tugs at readers' heartstrings and elicits enthusiastic chuckles in equal measure, sure to satisfy fans while welcoming new ones to the fold with open arms. In addition to his career as a novelist, Edward Kelsey Moore is also a nationally renowned cellist and accomplished music essayist. Good evening, and thank you very much for being here. I love reading at libraries. I uh, was very excited when, uh, when I found out that I would be at a library for this, uh, and mostly because um, libraries have had a, a really important place in my life. And uh, in fact, the, the first clear memory of my entire life was in the Indianapolis Public Library, the Central Library downtown, uh, when I was five years old. That's the, the first thing that I can clearly picture was walking into that library with my mother uh, when I went to get my very first library card. Um, <clears throat> because of that, you know, uh, because of that memory, libraries always put me in a nostalgic mood. And, and because I'm feeling nostalgic, um, I thought I would just use uh, a part of our time together to uh, talk about my, uh, talk about me and talk about my life and uh, you know sort of the the route that that brought me here. Uh, and to tell that story, um, I, I have to go back to that trip to the library with my mother back in the 1960s. Um, and uh, I know it's it's scary when, when a middle-aged author tells you they're going to start a story when they were five years old. Um, I, I promise I'm going to skip a lot of years between then and now. Um, I came from a family that valued education and, and valued books, uh, but didn't have a lot of money. So we were library patrons. My mother would pack me and my older brother and sister into the car every weekend and take us to the central branch of the Indianapolis Public Library. And I was the youngest of three, and I was very, very spoiled. And the fact that my older brother and sister had library cards and I didn't was infuriating to me. I, I couldn't accept the notion that they had anything that I didn't have. I was one of those kinds of kids. And uh, so I was very excited to get that library card. And back then, you had to be five years old to get one. Uh, so my mother and I got to the library. And when I got there, I learned that there was a catch. Uh, I found out that in order to get that library card, 
I had to be able to write my name unassisted. Uh, I knew how to write my letters. I didn't know how to write my name. Um, I'm told that, that that's a thing of the past, that, uh, that now uh, kids can get a library card without having to be able to write their names. Um, I, I hope that that is the case everywhere because it means that current librarians are spared witnessing the kind of epic tantrum that I threw when I found out that I was not going to be able to get that library card. Um, I fell onto the floor and I screamed and I kicked and I flailed around like I was being electrocuted. And I should add that this was not unusual behavior for me. I, I did that a lot. And um, I, was, I was just that kind of kid. I was, like I said, very spoiled and I was wildly overly dramatic. And I confess that I am occasionally still overly dramatic. Um, fortunately, I have managed to land in two careers that reward that. So anyway, um, instead of dragging me out of the library that day, my dear patient mother uh, took me to the reading room of the library. And that room, uh, by the way, is still one of my favorite places on earth. It's, uh, it's a big, grand room that was designed during an Egyptian architecture craze 100 years ago. And there are brass sphinxes and cat heads on the bookshelves. And there are two huge fireplaces at either end of the room. It looks sort of like the, the set of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's a really big, dramatic room. Well, and actually, as an aside, uh, I was back in that room about a month ago uh, when I was invited there to speak um, at a breakfast commemorating repurposing that reading room as the home of the Indianapolis Public Library's Center for Black C Literature and Culture. And uh, I had to give this speech there, and I was so tempted when I was standing there to, to throw myself on the floor and scream, you know, just to bring the whole thing full circle. But uh, I, I resisted that urge. <laughs> um, so, you know, back in, back in the 60s, in that beautiful room, my mother sat me down at a long wooden table and taught me to write my name. And I got my library card that afternoon, and I've had one ever since. And I, I cannot overstate the importance of that moment in my life. Um, I showed up at the library at least once a week from kindergarten until I graduated from high school. And it was in that library that I first started dreaming of having my name on the spine of a book in the library. And, you know, it, it, it was such a powerful image for me that it stayed with me through, through many, many years because I didn't, of course, become a writer immediately, not for a very, very long time. You know, because this is real life and not a book, things don't follow in a logical series of, of, of events. And um, instead of becoming a writer, I became a cellist. And I just went away from writing for about four decades. And well, that's not entirely true. I wrote hundreds of stories and essays uh, while I was completing my musical education and throughout my career as a cellist and a cello teacher, what I didn't do during all those years was finish any, <laughs> any short stories or essays. Um, and I have a huge Tupperware tub filled with at least 100 unfinished stories in the basement of my house. And uh, for decades, I would get these wonderful ideas and I would sit down full of excitement and begin to write. Um, I'd get really, really, really excited, and I'd work really, really hard, and then I would get distracted. Um, I'd, I'd have to prepare for a concert, or I would be doing something with my cello students, or I, I would just see a shiny object. It didn't really matter. I would, I, I would just get distracted. And that went on for decades. I'd start things, and they would all end up in the Tupperware tub with all the other stories. And then I turned 40, and I asked myself what I was waiting for. And I got, in the process, really sick of myself not finishing things. So I decided 
that I was gonna change that pattern and I set a goal for myself of completing one short story. And I figured if I could just write one short story, I would get that writing bug out of my system forever. And as it happened, Chicago Public Radio had a show called Stories on Stage. And it, they had at that time the annual short story contest. And I decided that that would be the perfect goal for me. So I promised myself that I would write a story and finish it and send it off to that contest. So I started writing a short story that was based on my close relationship with my great aunt, Olitha. And auntie is what we called her. And auntie was a funeral connoisseur. Since, since writing that story, I have met a lot of people I've met no one who, who admits to being a funeral connoisseur, but a lot of people who know them. And so Auntie would travel all over Indianapolis, my hometown, attending funerals of people that she barely knew or had any connection to. And the only thing that Auntie loved more than a brilliantly executed funeral was issuing these horribly scathing criticisms of funerals that did not meet her standards. And Auntie would say horrible things about the flower arrangements, horrible things about the outfit on the body, horrible things about the quality of the grieving. This was, this was her thing. And she took incredible delight in this. And I turned my, mem my memories of Auntie into a short story that was called Grandma and the Elusive Fifth Crucifix. I was really excited about that story and I worked really, really hard on it. And then I got distracted. And when the deadline came for sending the story into the radio station, that story went unfinished into that Tupperware tub along with everything else I'd ever written. Then, a month or two later, I was hired uh, to play a quartet gig in downtown Chicago. Um, as some of you might know, uh, when musicians, freelance musicians, are hired for a gig, they don't usually tell us what we're going to be playing or who our employer is. They just tell us what to wear and when to be there. And so I got to this gig and discovered upon arriving that my employer was Chicago Public Radio and that the gig was a party in celebration of the people who won the short story contest <laughs> that I did not enter. So that night, I sat there for three hours playing Mozart quartets and just getting more and more furious with myself. I should say, that's, I, I remember it as three hours. It probably was an hour or an hour and a half, but it seemed like three hours. And I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, I, I can't feel this bad again. I have, I have to fix this. And I made another promise to myself that I would never, ever feel that awful again. And the first thing I did was go back to the library uh, in Chicago this time. And I checked out a new collection of short stories every week and I got a bunch of books about writing because it finally hit me that maybe part of the problem I was having with completing any of my writing projects was that I didn't know how to write. And so I started reading a lot about the art of writing. And after logging in many, many hours at my neighborhood library, when that same short story contest rolled around the next year, I pulled that story about the funeral-loving old lady and her grandson out of the tub and I finished it. And Grandma in the Elusive Fifth Crucifix ended up winning the uh, Chicago Public Radio short, uh, Stories on Stage contest and that began my writing career. That story was broadcast on Chicago Public Radio and it became a listener favorite. And after it was published in a literary magazine, it found its way to an agent in New York. And uh, he wrote me a lovely letter saying how much he liked the story and that he really wanted to see the rest of my short story collection. 
I did not mention at the time that my short story collection was one story. And uh, I wrote him back and I said that I was going to polish the other stories in my collection. And a year later, I sent him a, a collection of 12 stories. Uh, he wrote me back then and said, oh, these stories are really great, but nobody wants a short story collection from an unknown writer. Send me a novel. And I wrote a novel. Uh, actually, I wrote two novels, the one that will never see the light of day. It was uh, <laughs> a horrible mystery set backstage at a, at a, at a chamber orchestra. It's, it's dreadful in every way, and uh, no one will ever see that. But um, <laughs> the other project that I, that I call my first novel, uh, The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, was the book that I completed after uh, this agent had told me that nobody wanted my short stories. Um, when I began that novel, I went back to my family for inspiration, and because I wanted to create women who were funny and who really delighted in each other's company and were really loyal to each other. Uh, and I grew up around those kinds of women. And so what I did was I thought about all of these women in my family, you know, my, uh, my great aunt Olitha, the, the funeral lover, had seven sisters. They were from a big farm family. And I grew up knowing about four or five of them quite well. And they were all just as odd as my, as my Aunt Olitha. And I also had, my mother had one sister, and that sister had five daughters of her own. So I grew up around a lot of, around of women, and they were all great storytellers. And I learned when I was very young that the conversation happening in the room where my mother and her aunts and all my female cousins were, the conversation there was infinitely more interesting than the conversation happening after Thanksgiving dinner in the room where my dad and the other men went to watch sports. They hardly said anything to each other. They stared at the TV. And, but if I hid outside of the room where my mother was, I heard everything. And it was really, really interesting. And even though, as a kid, I didn't understand a lot of what they were talking about, because they were, they were often very, very adult conversations. I am now, in, in middle age, still learning things about some of those conversations I overheard all those years ago. And it's little lights come on every now and then, and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. But it was a the way that they talked to each other, that really, really fascinated me, and how the conversation would go from heartbreakingly tragic to hilariously funny in just the blink of an eye. And I just loved that. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I was also amazed that some of the women who I discovered had the hardest and saddest lives were also the funniest people at the table. And it really taught me a lot about how people handle difficulty and how people survive difficulty and that people who survive difficulty often are funny people. They find something to laugh at at some point when things are really, really difficult and really, really hard for them. And it, was, it made a big impression on me and I think that anybody who's read anything I've ever written knows that. Um, so, so these women, were really so much a part of my life that it just seemed like a natural thing to use little bits of them in these women who I was creating uh, who ended up becoming the Supremes and these three lifelong friends from a fictional town in southern Indiana. They have a lot of humor and they have a lot of hearts and they're tough. And they were like, very much like the women that I grew up with. And I should say that I didn't use any family stories in, in either of my books because I want these people to continue to, talk, to speak to me. But, um, but I did want to use the, the rhythm of the way that they talked to each other and the, the feeling of how they spoke to each other. I wanted that to be as true as it could be. And you know, since writing that book, I've, I've had a lot of really wonderful experiences. Uh, you know, the book um, became a, a bestseller and I ended up having a lovely long tour and, uh, and I got to have some 
international travel with my tour, and it was really fabulous. And it was all a wonderful, wonderful surprise. I, I should, you know, it's, it's a really cool thing to have a book on the New York Times bestseller list. It's um, all of a sudden, you know, all these silly little inane things that I've said for years, people actually listen to all of a sudden. And it's, it's, it's hilarious. But um, it's, it's a really cool, cool thing. And there's a story that, uh, that I always tell that says a lot about me, and it says a lot about my writing, actually. Uh, and that story is the, of, of the day that my editor called me to tell me that my, my book was going to be on the Times list. Um, she called me up, and she gave me the news, and I went silent um, for several seconds. And uh, when my editor asked me what, what I was thinking, I, I just said, oh, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited, and I'm, I'm overcome. I, 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 can't, I, I just can't talk. Well, that was not exactly true. What happened was, when she told me that my novel was going to be on the New York Times bestseller list, because of the way I was raised, because I was raised by Baptist parents who had been preparing me for death since I was four years old, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had the reaction that I was trained to have. My reaction was, oh my god, my obituary is going to be so good. <laughs> and I was in that silence after my editor gave me that good news. I was picturing it. New York Times best-selling author Edward Kelsey Moore dies. And, and I was just so happy. And, it was, I know some of you, I think, probably understand this and know what I'm talking about. It, you know, it was, I, had, I did have a, I had a lovely childhood, but, you know, but to keep me on the right path, my parents took every opportunity to remind me that I, would, that I could be dead at any moment. It's just how it worked. Anyway, um, so uh, my, my new novel, uh, The Supreme Sing the Happy Heartache Blues, is a continuation of the story that began uh, with The Supremes that are all you can eat. This novel um, incorporates music more than anything I've written in the past. Um, I've been a musician since I was a kid, and I love it. Um, I can't imagine my life without it. It has brought me more joy than I can possibly express. And that joy has been a defining feature of my life and of my writing. And that sense of joy has grown stronger as my writing career has forced me to step away from music. So it was a natural progression for me to include more music in this book. My life as a musician and my life as a writer are very much intertwined. And my life as a cellist enriches my writing in you know, many, many ways, you know, large and small musicians appear as characters in a lot of my short stories and as well as in my two novels. And music is almost always in the air in my work, uh, where many writers will tell you what a room smells like or tell you about the fabric of a character's clothing. I'm much more likely in my work to describe what's on the radio or what they're hearing and, uh, and whether the character likes the music that's around them or not. Also. Uh, just on the practical level, um, I like to play the cello before I write. Uh, when, when I tell people that, they, they tend to think it's because music, especially classical music, is relaxing. When I tell other classical musicians that, uh, they have a very different reaction. Uh, they assume that I like to play before I write because it gets me excited and gets me, it gets uh, me very hyped up, and that's it, actually. Um, the relaxing effects of classical music are felt solely by the audience. Uh, the musicians are not relaxed. And you know, nothing makes my brain work faster or more clearly than classical music. Uh, playing the cello clears out the fog in my brain. And after a rehearsal or a performance, writing is always much, much easier. And I realized 
early in my writing career that music wasn't something I could separate from my literary life. It was actually a, a necessary feature of it. I just think better and write better when I'm playing the cello. And on a really practical level, being a musician has helped me to write everything I've ever written. Um, I don't have a formal writing education. Um, most of what I know about writing novels, I learned from reading them. So when I began to write my first novel, I felt completely lost about how to put the thing together. Uh, that whole messy issue of form was a real problem for me. And it had me stuck for a long time. And finally, I decided that what I should do was use the forms that I did understand well, and those are musical forms. Um, I won't get too nerdy about this, but <laughs> the gist of it is that I constructed my first novel and my second, and uh, this is also the way I'm constructing my the novel that I'm working on right now. I constructed those novels by using what's called sonata form. And sonata form is the musical structure of virtually every first movement of virtually every symphony. Uh, whether you know that you've heard sonata form or, or not, you have heard sonata form. You know, there's, the gist of it is there's a theme, you know, ba 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 ba, ba 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 ba. There's a counter theme, da 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 dee da da dum, da 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 dee da da dum. And then there's the addition of dissonance, and then those two themes get dragged through a whole bunch of key changes, and then you work towards resolving the dissonance and restating the theme. And that's essentially what sonata form is. So when I wrote my novels, I imagined that each character, each main character, was living a symphony movement. That they each had their themes, they each had contrasting themes, they each had dissonance into their lives, and they were working towards resolving it. And I was able that way to at least pretend that I knew what I was doing, and to have this uh, fantasy that, yeah, I, I know what has to happen next. Because it is a fantasy, because you don't really know. And you hope that you find out as you write. Music also has, it has entered my writing in ways that I, that I didn't realize. You know, um, I wrote my first book when I was working with the Joffrey Ballet Orchestra. And I spent the intermissions and the hours between the matinees and the evening performances writing longhand in my chair in the orchestra pit. And uh, I did that for many, many, many hours. After the book was published, I was at a bookstore reading from that first novel. And a woman in the audience asked me how I chose the name Odette for my main character. And I told her that I had had uh, three possible names for her, um, that I ended up at the end feeling that Odette was the right name, and just, it just felt right. Um, I told her the other names. They were Aurora and Giselle. And this woman pointed out to me something that had completely gone over my head for the five years between my starting to write that novel in the pit of the ballet and that day in that bookstore. And that is that she said, well, you know, Aurora is the name, some of you might know this, Aurora is the name of the heroine of the Tchaikovsky ballet, A Sleeping Beauty. Giselle, of course, is the heroine of the ballet Giselle. And Odette is the heroine of Swan Lake. So and I did not notice this at all as I was writing these books. And it was you know, years later, someone's telling me, oh, you, know, you, you gave your, your characters ballet heroine names. And so you know, music is it's just so much a part of me and so much a part of my life that it's, I don't even notice when it's there. So um, you know, that brief conversation with this woman really got me thinking about how, mu how music really creeps into every area of a musician's life. And thinking about that got me wondering, what if? And those are big words for fiction writers, what if? Um, I remember hearing a lecture that a very famous author gave many years ago, and uh, she said that what if are the writer's two favorite words. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Uh, 
after I had written a couple of novels, I don't think that's so true. I think, <laughs> I think that author's two favorite words are the end. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but what if is, are, are pretty good ones still. So what happened for me, though, was that I, I started to think, what if there was a man who uh, had music in his life and in his blood and in his soul, but what if that man, by nature or by circumstance, didn't have any of the joy? And that what if was the beginning of L. Walker, who is one of the new characters in, uh, in my latest novel. And L. Walker is the man who, because he is so passionate about music, but is unable to have any of the joy, he ends up just really screwing up his own life and that of the people around him. Um, at the start of the novel, Odette, the main character, is in a church listening uh, to a song. And that song is a dreary ballad called the Happy Heartache Blues. And L. Walker, the, the song's elderly singer, um, ends up impacting the lives of Odette and Clarice and Barbara Jean, who are the Supremes of the title. And each of them has a different reaction to the song, a very profound reaction, but, but unique to each of these women. And for Odette, in particular, hearing that song um, sets in motion a series of revelations. You know, she learns that the composer and singer is her husband's father, and a man that she thought was long dead. And she also has to think about just how well she knows her husband, with whom she's been very happily married for decades. And she also begins to look back on her very happy relationship with her own father. Her friends have different things that, that end up being churned up by this character. And throughout the novel, Odette and her friends rely on each other um, and as circumstances force them to take really hard looks at their most intimate relationships. And along the way, they encounter a, a legendary blues singer, a wisecracking, gender-fluid cabaret performer and her, and her angry father, and the ugliest baby in the world, and a bunch of ghosts, including Odette's outspoken mother and the ghost of Eleanor Roosevelt. So um, I thought I would read a little bit from the book, and then hopefully you guys will have a lot of questions for me. So I'm just going to start. Um, it's near the beginning. I should just say a couple little things about the, what's happened in the earlier pages. Um, Odette is sitting in a church, and she is listening to this piece of music that's out of place there, this blues song. And she starts to think about her parents, Dora and Wilbur Jackson, and because they were both big blues fans, and especially her father, who really loved these gloomy, uh, sad, sad blues songs. And we join her as she's hearing this song and thinking what her parents would have thought of it. Even though the song rumbling through the sanctuary would have been a bit dark for Mama's taste, she'd have loved the singer's wailing voice and the roller coaster ride of the melody. And she wouldn't have let this song go unnoted. If she had been in the church with me, she'd have turned to me and declared, Odette, your daddy would have loved this song. Every single word of it makes you want to die. I got to write this in my book. My mother's book was a calendar from Stewart's funeral home that she kept in her pocketbook. The cover of the calendar showed a gray and white spotted colt and a small boy in blue overalls. They were in a meadow, both of them jumping off the ground in an expression of unrestrained bliss. Above the picture were the words, jump for joy, and below, happy thoughts to you and yours from Stuart's funeral home. When Mama ran into something that she felt was remarkable enough to merit celebration, she wrote a note on that day's date so she'd never forget it. Mama's book first appeared on a Sunday afternoon about 10 years before she passed. We just walked out of our church, Holy Family Baptist, 
and Reverend Brown stood at the bottom of the front steps saying goodbye to his flock. Mama strode up to him and said, Reverend, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. I've been thinking about your Easter sermon all spring. It truly was a wonder, really opened my eyes. I want you to know you can consider this here soul 100% saved. Reverend Brown, who was more than a foot taller than Mama, bent over and took her hand. That's so kind of you, Dora, he said. I'm just doing what I can for the kingdom. I mean it, Mama said. You've won this battle for the Lord, and I wanted to make sure to thank you since I won't be coming back. Reverend Brown hung on to Mama's hand and waited for her to deliver the punchline to what he assumed was one of the peculiar jokes she was known to tell. But Mama wasn't kidding. She explained, Remember how you preached that if we really wanted to be closer to God, we should look at the world around us and write down a little thank you to him for all the things he gave us. Well, I took your words to heart and I've been doing that ever since. Mama opened her pocketbook then and pulled out a rolled up wall calendar. She flipped three pages back to Easter and showed the pastor where she had written best sermon ever on the little square for that date. Then she showed him how she had jotted brief notes on each day of the calendar since then. Reverend, you truly preached your ass off this morning, but just like you said, it was nothing compared to the way I feel when I'm sitting alone thanking God directly. So I'm taking your advice and skipping the middleman. She waved her calendar in the air. From now on, I'm going straight to the source. She pulled a pen from her pocketbook and wrote an entry on that day's date in her book that read, second best sermon ever. Then she patted Reverend Brown on his cheek and walked away from Holy Family Baptist forever. Stewart's funeral home came out with a new calendar each year. Since Mr. Stewart was notoriously cheap, he reused the same cover. Mama had a fresh Jump for Joy book every January. She wrote in her book until her last morning on this earth. As the sanctuary reverberated with the howling third verse of the astonishing blue singer's lament, I imagined Mama beside me in the pew writing, bluest blues in all creation. With Mama in mind, I leaned toward my husband James and shared my evaluation of the music filling Calvary Baptist Church. This is the saddest song I have ever heard. James said, your old man would have loved it. The singer who sat hunched over his guitar in a dark corner, crooning and roaring about loving and forgiving his cruel woman, looked to be about 70. He was tall and skinny, and he had a white beard that swallowed his face from nose to neck. James was right. Daddy would have loved the way the blues man bent the pitches of the tune in such a bleak way that you knew love had brought him trouble and that there would be more bad news coming in the days ahead. The blues is what a love song turns into after the singers had his teeth kicked out, Daddy once said. What kind of beating had life given this bearded man who stared at the floor and filled the room with gorgeous sorrow? How did he end up here, curled around his guitar, letting loose a heartbreaking cry for all the world to hear? Every line of this song brought to mind Daddy's definition of the blues. There was no way this man had a single unbroken tooth left in his mouth. Full of love, loss, passion, and bitterness, the song was made even more pitiful by the occasion. It accompanied a radiant bride as she made her stately procession down the center aisle toward her groom. She moved toward the altar with an ease and grace that were quite impressive considering the character of the music and the fact that she had recently celebrated her 82nd birthday. The bride, Beatrice Jordan, was the mother of my best friend Clarice. Miss Beatrice was a leading member of Calvary Baptist, the most no-nonsense church in Plainview, Indiana. She was a good Christian woman whose greatest source of pride came from being a better Christian than anybody else. I loved Miss Beatrice, but she was so extravagantly and annoyingly devoted to the Lord and to making sure that everybody else was too that being around her for too long had a way of, sh of shattering my resolve to keep his commandments. 
Over the years, she'd pushed me to take the Lord's name in vain more times than I'd like to recall, and Miss Beatrice had driven everyone I knew to think about murder at least once. The groom was Mr. Forrest Payne, the owner of the Pink Slipper Gentleman's Club, the only legally operating business in Plainview that had ever been called scandalous. The club had been known for on-site gambling, prostitution, and a flagrant disregard for all liquor laws. There was a time when reputations were ruined and marriages destroyed just because previously respectable men had been seen walking near the pink slipper's door. The club's unsavory public image scared away many potential customers, but served as effective advertising for just as many others. My Aunt Marjorie swore that the pink slipper was the only place in town to hear the blues done right as well as the only place to find corn liquor as potent as the killer brew she made at home. She was a pink slipper regular till the day she died. And when I say till the day she died, I mean it. Aunt Marjorie had a fatal heart attack while disarming a man who pulled a knife on her during a fight at the club. At her funeral, Forrest Payne comforted Mama by telling her that her sister had passed with her opponent's knife clutched in her fist and a satisfied grin on her face. The brawls, overt prostitution, and gambling were now history, or so I've been told. These days, the club was more likely to be spoken of as a respected music venue than as a low dive. Forrest had been rehabilitated, and his business had been purified along with him. The main reason for his rise from social pariah to elder statesman and philanthropist was at that moment serenely gliding his way, clutching a bouquet of pale peach roses and silvery white chrysanthemums. This love match had taken everyone by surprise. Over the years, Miss Beatrice had become famous around town as the nutty old woman who regularly stationed herself on a hillock at the edge of the Pink Slippers parking lot and yelled warnings of eternal damnation at arriving and departing customers through her bullhorn. She blamed Forrest for facilitating the repeated infidelities of her first husband, my friend Clarice's father, and it had become her life's mission to keep other men from following that same sinful path. In spite of her softened feelings toward Forrest Payne, even nowadays, she showed up at the parking lot occasionally to shout at patrons on the evenings when the dancers stripped. She'd left the bachelorette party Clarice put together for her the night before her wedding to do just that. But since romance had warmed her heart, instead of yelling, the fires of hell await you sinner, at departing customers the way she used to, Miss Beatrice now hollered, God bless you fornicator, drive carefully. Thank you. So, um, so that's the beginning of the novel. It, um, it proceeds uh, from there to uh, our discovering many, many things about Elle Walker, the singer of the song, and to Odette and her husband especially having to deal with the fallout from having this man in their midst. And uh, the novel ultimately is a, is a book about forgiveness and about how people strive to forgive, whether they should forgive, and, uh, and what forgiveness means to people. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Edward Kelsey Moore and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if any of Moore's characters are taken in part from his family members. It's a funny thing, you know, uh, a number of people in my family have said to me that they recognize themselves in the book. In each case, it is never a character who I took even the slightest thing from them uh, to, to, to add to that character's description. Uh, a, a number of women in my family have 
told me, you know, taken me aside and said that they recognized that they were the inspiration for Barbara Jean, the beautiful character. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I say, okay, if you think so, you know, we'll, just, we'll just go with that. But, uh, but yeah, it's a funny thing. There are a few moments in the book that I, took, that I did take from real life. And uh, the, there's a scene in, in my first novel, uh, there's a wedding that goes terribly, terribly awry, and a series of awful things happen. With maybe one exception, uh, there's, uh, one of the things that happens is these hawks sweep in and, uh, and pick off the doves that they've released at this wedding. Well, um, that did not happen in real life, but all the other things that happened at that wedding happened at weddings that I played as a cellist. And they didn't all happen at the same wedding, but all the other things actually happened in real life. And the funny thing is, there was one main wedding that I took things from, actually, that was this giant spectacle of a wedding, and that, that's where the, there's a pink cloud in this, uh, in this wedding that the bride, one of her uh, fantasies for, uh, for the wedding is that she wants to enter through a pink cloud. That is something I actually saw at a wedding, that, that they had manufactured this pink cloud for this bride to walk in through. And, uh, and I, and I, I always, I'm always, always nervous when I tell this story in Chicago because I'm always afraid that the bride is going to say, hey, I, I walked in through a pink cloud. What's, what is he talking about? But um, anyway, so she, she walked in through a pink cloud, and she did indeed begin to sing into a microphone that was hidden in her bouquet and sang her way down the aisle. And no, she was not a good singer. And, but what I didn't write in the book that happened in real life was actually it was a duet, and the, and the groom actually turned around and sang back at her. <laughs> but I thought, well, no one would believe that. So, you know, <laughs> so I had to, I had to you know, <laughs> temper it a little bit. But, um, and I, I should say, there's one other, there's actually one family story that I took, but everybody, would, everyone who was involved in that story was dead, so I, would, I thought it was safe. And that was actually the story that in the very first, I guess, sorry, in this, actually, it's in the third chapter of my first novel, it's the death of Big Earl. Uh, his, in, the, in the novel, his wife, uh, he dies, and his wife decides that she'll just leave him dead at the side of the bed until the next day. That actually happened with my great aunt, uh, Edith, and her husband. She, uh, they'd been married for like 60 years. This is my oldest uh, great aunt. And she, you know, she, he dropped dead while he was saying his, pra his prayers, just like it happens in the book. Um, and, and just like it happened in the book, the next day, she, uh, she called her daughter and she says, uh, well, this is actually not exactly like it happened in the book, but she called her daughter the next day and says, oh, your father died last night. And, he, uh, and the, the daughter was shocked and she says, oh, well, why didn't you call me? She says, well, you know, um, I figured if I called you, the preacher would have come, and all the grandkids have come, and there'd be everybody here, and I wouldn't have gotten a bit of sleep. <laughs> so I figured, you know, your father would be just as dead if I got a good night's sleep. <laughs> and so here's the thing, though. What, what's different in real life and from the book? I think Aunt Edith really did love her husband. I think, I think they had a very happy marriage. So there isn't that, unlike in the novel, where there's a bit of anger and bitterness that's with this character who does this with her husband. I think that, as sometimes happens when someone's had a really, really long marriage, they're so used to each other that, oh, okay, well this is, you know, they've seen each other through so many changes, like, hey, here's another one, you know? <laughs> and I think that sometimes people can just go, oh, okay, well, now he's dead, we'll deal with it tomorrow. And so I think there wasn't a bit of anger or, bitter, or, or bitterness there or hostility. Um, in, in that action. I think it was just practicality and a familiarity with his body in, in whatever stage of, of life or death it was. This next question is what Moore has planned for his next book. My new novel is, uh, is, not, is a whole new set of people. Um, it's a story of, of a family and the story of a neighborhood. And uh, it's a lot like the um, the suburban neighborhood that I grew up in, and it's sort of telling the story of, uh, of what happens to this, this family and this neighborhood 
around them over the course of um, four decades or so. And uh, it was, you know, I, I go home, um, my parents are both still living and, uh, but are quite elderly. And they're in a neighborhood that uh, when, I, when we moved there was all new houses. And a lot of the parents, my parents were actually sort of on the younger end of the parents in, in that neighborhood. And so they're, uh, consequently, they're all dying off. And so there's been a, a huge uh, demographic shift in that neighborhood. And the, it's, it's been a fascinating thing to watch, you know, it's, uh, as I, we see these families that we've known for many, many years go away, and, uh, and I was really struck by that, you know, and, and continue to be struck by that as I see my parents more often now because of their advancing years. And so I, I started thinking about, you know, what happens to houses, what happens to neighborhoods, and how we relate to one another because of those things. So that's, that's the new book. It's a, I, think, I think it should be fun. You know, it's, I, I think like most of what I write, it's a funny book about awful things. And so, anyway. This question is if Moore has any ambitions about furthering his career as a cello player. To be, if I'm being totally honest about it, um, my, I am at the point in my life where my cello playing is receding in my life. I simply don't have the time to practice enough to play at the level that I used to play. Um, if I'm being totally honest about it, I don't like facing that fact, but it's true. Um, if you want to play well, you have to practice a lot. And I've come to realize that there is no way that I can write as many books as I want to write and, uh, and pay as much attention as I want to to my writing career and practice that many hours. I have to be now quite careful about what, what I play. I can't play the, the really, really difficult things that I used to. In solo repertoire is not going to happen for me anymore. And uh, I can work really, really hard and play the orchestral work repertoire where, frankly, five years ago I didn't have to work hard to do it. Now I have to. So it's, I make it sound so sad, but it's not really. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to be in the position I'm in to be able to play professionally, to play with good musicians, and to have fun playing the instrument, and to have a writing career. I never dreamed that I'd have this opportunity. And I'm absolutely thrilled, and I'm thankful for it every single day. So there's, you know, it's sad for me to not be able to sit down and play at a really high level all the time, but that's just how it goes. When you don't practice, you don't play as well. And I'm having to come to grips with that that I can't, that there's no magic pill. I, uh, this is the way, you know, I, uh, the, the gentleman behind you is one of my former cello students. And, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, you know, he heard me talk about practice enough, I'm sure, all those years ago. But uh, it's, it's the same for me as it was for my students. Uh, I, if you put in the hours, then it's going to sound better. Sounds like you're transitioning. I am. Uh, and it's, and frankly, it happens to all musicians. Whether, uh, whether you are, whether it's just the process of aging, or it's for me that I've had to step away from it a bit, and I'm aging. So it's the two things. And, when, and again, when you don't practice as much, it's like any other sort of exercise. You, you, you use it or lose it. And is that the right term? Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and so I'm, uh, I'm sadly losing it a little, little more because I'm not using it as much. And uh, I wish, you know, I tried for the first couple of years of the, when, when writing became a real presence in my life, I was in denial about that. And I thought, oh, you know, I just have to, to cram more practicing in here and there. And no, you know, if you are playing day in and day out, you are at a certain level and that level dips. And it has dipped for me. I, but luckily, Music is one of those careers where when, you do, when you're no longer meeting the mark, it, th you will be told. You know, um, they, and I won't have to make a decision. It, the decision will be made for me. So um, I'm hoping to stretch this out a little longer. But uh, when the day comes that uh, I can't contribute uh, to the satisfaction of the, the musicians around me, they will let me know. Another audience member wonders if Moore ever completed his collection of short stories.
I did, but no one has published it. And I've about a dozen short, short stories and essays that have been published in different literary magazines. Um, and I hope to return to them one day. Some of them I've used bits of in my novels. But I do hope to return to short, I love short stories. And I think they're a lot harder, frankly, than novels. Uh, the novels take a long time just because you're, you know, there's a lot of pages and you've got to write a story over, over a huge arc. But, um, but that precision of short stories is so hard where every single word matters. You can meander a little bit when you're writing a novel. As, and as you probably noticed, I like to meander. So uh, that, that room that you have with a novel is very comforting. And you can just sort of wander off to this little corner and that little corner. But if you're writing a short story, you can't do that. And I did that a lot, and, um, which was a problem with a lot of my short stories. The way that I had of, of meandering away from the, uh, the gist of the story as if I were writing a novel. And, but, uh, but I love writing that, and, and I like the restrictions of, uh, of a short story. I've, uh, I hope to return to that and do that again soon. This next question asker inquires how many hours a day Moore finds himself writing. That depends. When I really want to get something done, um, then I tend to write for about five hours a day. I, what I do, though, is um, I don't really so much uh, set the clock, but when I'm really trying to get through a project, I have a word minimum. So uh, I usually have a word mem minimum of 1,200 words a day, and I make myself sit in the chair until those 1,200 words are on the page. And then, then I let myself get up. And if I'm on a good day and I get those 1,200 words in three hours, then I will I'll let myself get up. If I, if I feel like that I'm done, then I'll get up and go. But I will sit there until those, uh, until those 1,200 words are written. And sometimes it takes six hours. So, but, but for me, that's the, the word minimum is the thing for me. The last question of the night is if Moore listens to music while he writes. I do all the time, um, but never classical music. It's too distracting. Um, I write to folk music. There's a, there's a folk music stream called Folk Alley that I listen to whenever I, uh, whenever I write. I turn that on, and I, I love the words. You know, it's, it, it doesn't interfere with what I'm writing, but I, I, I love the mood. I love, it, it really puts me in the right space for writing. I was over at, uh, at NPR today, um, and I had a, an interview over there, and I ran into a woman who, uh, named Elena C., who uh, works at, at NPR, and she also is one of the hosts of Folk Alley. And I had this like total fanboy reaction to her. Oh, I really so good. And she's looking at me like I'm a nut, you know, like oh, I just love you on Folk Alley. And she's like, okay, yeah, that's good. But anyway, but you know, to, I've, I've probably listened to her more than because she she's usually at the, the late night spot, and that's when I when I like to write. So uh, it's, a, it's always folk music, I love it. Well, um, thank you again for coming. It's a, so great to see everybody, and thank you to Club Force for having me. That wraps up our St. Paul Rondo Community Library event with Edward Kelsey Moore. And that'll wrap up our summer-fall 2017 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in January as we announce our winter-spring 2018 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past eight seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, 
MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.